Thank you for joining the conversation today. I'm Randy Yu, Assistant Director of Collection Development and Curator of Political, Cultural, and Social Movement Collections at Emory University's Stuart A. Rose Manuscript, Archives, and Rare Book Library. And you're listening to the new podcast series, Rose Library Presents, Atlanta Intersections. Atlanta Intersections explores how lives and places are bound together in the city we call home. Today I'm talking with Mariana Kaufman, an Atlanta martial artist, librarian, and researcher about Karate for Women, a local martial arts organization that existed from 1974 to 1982. Kaufman started the organization as an outgrowth of her involvement in the women's liberation movement, and the Rose Library is proud to be the home of the Karate for Women records. Mariana, welcome to Atlanta Intersections. Thank you for being with us today. And thank you, Randy, for doing this. Well, I, I have to tell you, I have to make a confession as we get started. Um, Karate for Women is one of my favorite collections at the Rose Library. Um, I love how it shows how people can take something that they're passionate about and make community around it and also create a benefit for their community. And so whenever people come to the Rose Library to see stuff, I always pull stuff for um, Karate for Women to show them. Well, I'm honored. Thank you. It was uh, a, certainly a huge, huge part of my life for many, many years and uh, something that I was very passionate about and indeed still am. Um, and um, I appreciate your uh, acknowledging that uh, too. Well, let's let's go back a little bit further uh, to get started. So, uh, where are you from? I'm, I'm originally from Macon, Georgia, um, which, as you know, is about a hundred miles south of here. And I've lived uh, in Atlanta um, mostly all of my adult life since um originally in 1968 to 70 was gone for a year or two altogether uh, except for about eight years uh, for two different jobs and for college have lived the rest of my life uh, here in Atlanta so I can you know I'm a Georgia native and an Atlanta and um, by choice mostly um here in uh, Candler Park um um We've lived here for the last, in this particular house, for about 40-some-odd years. Uh, so uh, I consider Candler Park my home, too. So you're you're in Macon. Um, how did you get interested in martial arts? Did you get interested in martial arts in, while you were living in Macon? No, but I do remember um, as a child, um, my dad taking um, my younger brother, the, the two youngest weren't born, I'm the oldest of four, but I remember him taking my younger brother and me to see wrestling at the, uh, at the city auditorium, and I was, I was actually very interested in some of the wrestlers, <laughs> and this may have something to do with my, my uh interest in libraries, because I haven't told you that I was also a reference librarian for 23 years. But um, one of my earliest 
memories of a magazine subscription was to wrestling news. So, <laughs> so other than Children's Digest and a few other things, <laughs> I did have a subscription to wrestling news. So I saw wrestlers, and I think there were a few martial artists uh, at that time too, but we're talking about the 1950s then when I, when I was growing up. But I, I became interested in martial arts um, in Atlanta. Um, I was living in one of the uh, women's communes in the Little Five Points area, and there was a husband of one of the women who was teaching um, classes, and we took with lessons with him for um, about a year. We, um, uh, we had started out uh, down at the uh, YWCA downtown, um, and then we moved to uh, what was what is now the Moreland School um, uh, on Euclid Avenue, and he taught us on the stage of that school. And then after about a year or so, um, uh, he stopped doing that, and the and the the um, eight or ten of us. Uh, who uh, were still in the classes at that time, decided to join a, uh, a martial arts school um, in, in Atlanta that was in the Highland, Virginia area. Well, I was very reluctant to do that, but I, I finally did. I was the last one of the bunch to, to join. Well, gradually over the years, um, everybody else from, I guess, my, my cohort uh, of the women who started taking this at the school dropped out, and I began after a couple of years to like it. So I stayed in, even though I had been um, the reluctant one uh, to join. And after about five years, I, I got uh, my first black belt there. I just want to be clear that you didn't like it until after a couple of years. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know why. I'm, I have a, uh, a long streak of, uh, of stubbornness and persistence, I guess. And uh, anyway, but the point is that I did begin to like it a lot. And I stayed in it. And it was there in the school when I realized that I wanted to teach women that there was nobody that was focusing on women. And um, through the women's liberation movement, which I was also very involved with from the very beginning in Atlanta, uh, I began to hear about and um, meet uh, women martial artists from other parts of the country. And then somehow or another, after about maybe four years of doing this at uh, you know, being at this school for about uh, maybe two or three years, um, it just came to me that what I really wanted to do was to teach karate classes to women. And that's when I decided to start making that happen. And so was there a particular moment when you realized or, or something that pushed you? Yeah, there was definitely a particular moment. I don't know what happened to me. We were somehow or another, we were going around the room in this class and it was a rare thing to say something. And was, I, I think the question might have been, why are you doing martial arts or something like that? And it just came out of me that I wanted to teach martial arts classes to women. It just, you know, it was almost like an epiphany. You don't usually say things like that. It could be a, a threat to the uh, 
hierarchy, which I think it began to be. Uh, I definitely, definitely think so that it was began to be my having said that, um, even though I never talked about what I was doing anymore um, out in that particular setting, it was shortly after that, even though I had not gotten um, the, the black belt in that school, it was shortly after that that I began to teach classes to women to make that happen. Where, where did you teach the classes? Um, well, I arranged um, to begin with uh, at one of the recreation centers in Atlanta. It was actually on Moreland Avenue, and, and it was the Bass Recreation Center. And I think it was a draw for them to bring more people in uh, to that center. Um, and so I began teaching classes there in the evenings um, and on weekends. And um, I, that was where I predominantly taught the Karate for Women classes uh, over the years. So there were uh, there was about a year or so when when the building was being renovated, uh, when we um, when we had other arrangements in one of the churches in the uh, uh, in the area, uh, we were arranged to 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 use that. And then I also uh, taught classes in the on the weekends and late in the afternoons uh, at a at a park um, too uh, all year round uh, except and then also at this particular church and in a church hall too but that was um, maybe in the late 1970s by then and we're talking about my beginning um, in 1974. And so what was the Atlanta martial arts scene like in 1974 when you started this? Were there other programs for women to be involved in the martial arts at the no, time? there was nothing whatsoever. But I had heard um, through the Women's Liberation Movement, I found out about women instructors in just about all of the major cities around the country. They were in Boston and Washington. There were three or four in New York, in Chicago, in Seattle, in Oakland, and, you know, just to name some of the cities where I knew women instructors. There began to be in the late uh, 1970s um, uh, a National Women's Martial Arts Association that I um, began to uh, attend some of their sessions and um and they put out a magazine that I think that you all have uh, in the uh, collection at Emory um, and also a directory of where women's martial arts classes and um, programs were around the country. So I participated in those things as well, and uh, it grew from there. How did you approach folks and say, hey, I'm teaching a class? How did you present yourself to students? Well, you know, I knew that there had been, I mean, for the karate classes, um, they were at this one recreation center, and the women's bookstore in Atlanta, Karis, uh, was kind enough to let me put flyers up. I put flyers up everywhere. I put notices in neighborhood newspapers. There was a lot of word of mouth. Uh, that was a big way um um, uh, through the um, the Atlanta Lesbian Feminist Alliance, through uh, posters at other recreation centers, and and so I began to grow the classes slowly. Um, 
it's, it obviously met a need because at the beginning I had a lot of people, a lot of people tried it out uh, and then didn't do it. But um, I began not long after starting the Karate for Women classes, I also began teaching the um, short-term uh, introductory self-defense classes for women. And that was a big, big draw because I could advertise by that time uh, in the fall of 1975 was when I, actually September 5th, 1975, I remember it because this year it was the 45th anniversary of me um, getting my first black belt. Um, I, but I, when you advertise yourself at that particular time as a black belt woman instructor, that was an anomaly. And so women were interested. And then um, the short-term self-defense classes I began to develop after talking to other women and seeing what um, uh, reading magazines and thinking about uh, what were the kinds of things that were different in a short-term class that would that are were essential to women to uh, to know to not get beaten up, not getting raped, and not getting killed. And those were um, the things that I thought about when I created the um, the short-term classes. And by short-term, I don't mean like an hour or two. I'm talking about um, usually 12 to 16-hour um, courses. You were teaching in a dojo kind of a setting, and then you decided to do the self-defense? Is that the, the chronology? Yeah, that's what it was. I started out with the Karate for Women classes, and then I... Um, began uh, teaching at, at, at recreation centers, uh, different recreation centers around town, different y, YWCAs for different organizations. For, I would do that for women. And then I went to, the, um, to colleges, and I would get appointments with the, with the deans and present the program that I wanted to do. And, and um the first college that I, I went to, I went to, to Spelman and uh, met with the dean there, Dean Sadie Allen, and um, offered, this was 1974, and, um, and then ended up uh, being hired. This was, it was not a, it was an extracurricular activity, but I ended up teaching three um, I think 16-hour courses. This particular one was, I think, uh, once a week uh, or t- twice a week for, I'm not sure of the particular configuration, but it was either a 12- or 16-hour course, uh, over, and then it was over a period of a month, I believe, um, and uh, with shorter uh, things. I think maybe maybe it was a 12-hour and three hours a session, and I ended up teaching three of those, and and students and staff and faculty all joined this. So I knew that I had something, and I was allowed to put posters up everywhere. They helped do that, and I was given a space, and uh, I brought the equipment that I needed, and uh, that began, um, uh, um, that was why I ended up teaching at uh, Amory, Oglethorpe, Agnes Scott, Spelman, Georgia State, um, among the colleges, the uh, at Bass Recreation Center, at the Decatur Recreation Center, at a, 
whole bunch of other ones for different women's organizations. You know, over the years, I think I taught um, over the, um, I think it was about 2,000 women, girls and women that I taught these either short-term classes or ongoing evening and weekend karate classes. When you're teaching um, the self-defense course as opposed to the regular karate classes, like how did you change your kind of instruction philosophy and all that for these these weekend or short-term self-defense courses? Well, I thought a lot about what are the things that could be learned that could be remembered um, so we did a lots of repetitions of the things that could be remembered that were absolutely essential. We did a whole lot about awareness, uh, awareness of your surroundings. We did a whole lot about what were the weapons that you could have access to to help defend yourself either on your body or in your surroundings. Um, we did what were the fears that people had and began to, you know, address those. Um, I mean, my karate classes were very, very different from traditional martial arts classes, and so were the self-defense classes, too. They were specifically geared for women. They were specifically in the karate classes, specific issues that needed to be dealt with with women, and the same thing with the self-defense classes. So you have to put yourself in the mindset of somebody who is just coming there and what are the basic things that can be learned and remembered in a short-term class and with karate classes, what are the issues that need to be addressed on an ongoing basis uh, there too. For one thing, um, our women's upper body strength is not comparable to men's. And so I got this from the, because we, the women's classes all over the country borrowed from one another. It was very, and as long in my book as we gave credit where credit was due, um, I, I use this. So we did these dumbbell exercises that were from a school in Washington, D.C. called Jashindo. And they did upper body exercises with, I think it was two or three pound, three pound dumbbells. There were a series of uh, about 10 or 12 exercises that we began to do every single class. I, I had uh, dumbbell, uh, three pound weights for everybody. And, um, and some people ended up getting their own to continue on with them. And we did these about 10 minutes of exercises every single class in order for women to build up their upper body strength. Now, the reason we didn't go to heavier ones is because if you go to heavier weights, it slows down the body. It slows down the upper body. And you want to keep speed in martial arts and speed, especially because women are small. If somebody attacks you, I would bet you 95 times out of 100, they're going to be bigger than you are because men who attack women are bullies. So you, you want to still have the speed to be able to counter. But we would do these 10 or 15 minutes worth of exercises every single hour and a half class. Because it was women's classes and I wanted everybody to be able to come, we did 
uh, childcare, rotating childcare. So everybody took probably one session every two months and did childcare. And I and I and other people brought toys that I would bring every time because we didn't have a lock or anything. Had a big bag with toys and books and things like that for kids. So there were <laughs> there were women whose whose children. You know, for the three or four years that they did martial arts with me, their children were raised in our in our uh, in our classes, and so we did rotating childcare with that. And then at the end of the um, classes, because sometimes I mean women don't have a history. A lot of times, I mean, yes, there are. We would have a kind of a constructive criticism session at the end where. Um, we would talk about what happened in class. And sometimes, um, you know, it could be things that were happened were, you know, could be disturbing to people and people might want to take a risk and talk about things like that. Well, these are things that would never go on in a traditional dojo. That is fascinating. Um, I was also looking back at some of your newsletters and for your for your classes that you meet on Mondays, Tuesday, Wednesday nights, and Saturday mornings. That's a pretty serious training schedule. And we had different um, levels of people in, in the class, so I would made sure that I taught people, the ones who had been there the longest, and indeed everybody, how to teach so that I could teach different um, for a while, I was teaching two different, uh, some years where I was teaching, you know, a beginner's class, and then those would be integrated into the upper classes. But there were some times when it would be all in one, depending on when I could get uh, time at the recreation centers, you know, and, and also when we were meeting outside and, and wherever we were. So it was it was a very good experience, too, Um and I tried to work with as many people as possible doing things so that people were always learning, always improving. And with martial arts, there's also a great deal of repetition, too, with things, too. But um, in, in all respects, it was, it was a lot of teaching. But I was doing this full time. I was teaching um, in the daytime. I was teaching classes uh, as, well as, uh, as well as evenings, too, so. You know, one of the things uh, I found um, that you wrote about, and this is is a quote, um, the exercises, dumbbells, meditation, and regular ongoing systematic training in the martial arts can make us all feel not only physically fit, but give confidence, self-assurance, and peacefulness inside. Uh, does that does that kind of reflect your? I mean, hearing that forty five years later, how do how do you how do you feel about that? I, I think probably that was true at the time, and when I and because I have trained again uh, until uh, recently when I had uh, some hip issues and now have had uh, hip replacement surgery. But um, I trained again after I retired, uh, though not in uh, not that organization ended in in. The, in, eight, in the early 80s, um, but I started training again after I retired um, as a reference librarian. I couldn't, I couldn't train because um, my schedule as a reference librarian was I had to uh, work every uh, one night every week, uh, every, and then and it rotated, and every other Saturday 
and every third Sunday. Well, I just couldn't, the rotations meant I just couldn't teach anymore. Plus, I had made a decision that at, at the time when I stopped teaching, I was 38 years old, and I didn't think that I could do this the rest of my life, and I needed and I had made my classes such that uh, that people paid a very minimal amount, and I didn't think that I wanted, I had a skill that I knew that could help women not get beaten up, not get raped, not get murdered, and so I wanted to be able to share that, and so I made my classes affordable. That was probably another issue why so many people took them, but it was not enough really for me to make a living, and so I went back to uh, to graduate school in library science and and um, and got a master's in library science and and um, and then became a uh, a reference librarian. I'd started out before working at the at the Atlanta Fulton Public Library while I was still teaching, and indeed I ended up teaching. Uh, a class for um, for women at the library too, um, a, a short term self defense class. But I think that that philosophy was definitely something that is worthwhile, and it certainly helped me a lot over the years. Even uh, training again when I started up again after I retired. What styles are your black belts in? You mentioned Korean hard style. So, yeah, uh, there were two, the first two were in Korean hard styles. And then the, my, my, since I have, um, I, I didn't get any, um, I actually only got one. Uh, when I did Wing Chun the first time with Sifu Francis Fong, um, I didn't, we, he was not giving belts out at the time. You just, I did it for a couple of years with him. And then, um, uh, when I was doing with um, the, the man who left town, uh, when I was doing Wing Chun, I did it for about a year, and I was because I was retired and he had classes in the daytime. Uh, I was doing it five or six times a week, and um, he he finally, right before he left town, he did he did um, give us a belt uh, level in that, but it was not a black belt, but it was just a, it was a year of very very intense uh, intensive training. And um, but then when the school that I'm in now, I got after about, I think, six years, I got the first black belt. And then a year and a half later, they were promoted you again. Um, I got uh, to to one what the style is, one red stripe. So I guess it's either three different styles, um, but two black, two high level belts within this most recent style, which is called Kung Nu. Uh, it's the Vietnamese for hard, soft. What What's it like to um, have this incredibly long journey in martial arts that you started in the 70s? What, what has that been like? You know, I think it's just been so much a part of my life. I can't even now, even though it's been a year and a half since I've been able to train, um, I, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to be able to, after having had the hip replacement surgery, I think at some point I'm going to be able to go back and definitely do the soft style parts of my martial arts and and uh, hopefully be able to teach uh, kids again, which I was doing at the end, but uh, towards the last year and a half, I hadn't been able to even demonstrate things to people. But, you know, it's just so much a part of my life. I just, I can't imagine it. And now I'm I do Zoom with uh, with my with the uh, with the black belts uh, every uh, week or two, and I 
I watch the classes and things like that. It's just um, so much a part of me, and 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 um, and so many people in my life have been involved in it. So uh, who who I'm very close to. It's interesting. Most of my teachers uh, now are. Uh, are so much younger than I am, too, but it's just really, really wonderful. You know, I, there was something else I wanted to mention, too, going back to the uh, short-term self-defense classes and also a little bit more about um, the original martial arts classes. They weren't very friendly. Um, when I started training, I don't know if if it had to do with anti-woman, you know, if it had to do with misogyny or anti-gayness or, or whatever, but it, Somehow or another, I, I uh, you know, um, it was a very threatening thing at my school originally. And that's why I never went back after I got my black belt. The, the difference between, you know, now when I, when I went to this new school, it was just a radically different thing. There was a sign uh, when I first went in that said, uh, leave your shoes and your ego at the door. And, you know, that was a big thing, too. But, you know, um, the women's classes um, were a very, very supportive kind of thing. Whenever things would get threatening to anybody, people were able to talk about it. And even in the short-term self-defense classes, that was a real big issue for people to be able to say things that had happened to them, you know, women who had been beaten up or had been raped or I had a history of abuse to be able to talk about things like that. And some did, some talked about that privately with me uh, when I spoke on the phone to people to, to, you know, tell people about the classes once they left a phone number um, or um, because this was before the days of internet or, um, you know, in the classes themselves, the short term classes to be able to talk about that to talk about, you know, and people had to become a lot of times acclimated to being hit. And also, I mean, I, I remember so many stories, and I think about, wrote about some of them in, that are in the archives um, that you all have, too. I don't know. I think uh, there was one, and I was thinking about this, too, about one of the women in the, in the class who was, um, had had polio, and so she used leg braces and arm braces, I taught her how we worked out, uh, you know, when she said she wanted to train, well, nobody had developed anything like that, but she and I worked together and we developed, um, we developed a series of self-defense moves for her. We developed sparring techniques for her and she became learning how to use this, her arm braces, especially as weapons she became the most threatening person in the class from someone who was, you know, in a set of braces on her legs and on her arms. So you could change people's perceptions of themselves within this particular context. And I don't know even now if that's something, it's certainly something I try to do when I, when I teach girls and women within my uh, classes at my school, and I've talked to the men too about about the things that you need to do to encourage women. So, but that that's something you could focus on in these women's classes and in the women's karate classes and in the women's 
um, self-defense classes is changing your uh, attitude about how you saw yourself. Well, that, that brings us to a great transition because I found this quote in the collection that came specifically out of your self-defense classes, but I think it kind of applies to a larger area, but it's a quote, it is necessary for women to feel a certain self-righteousness, a feeling of, I'm a human being who has a right to exist. Who are you to dare to attack me? I don't know if I would say it that same way now, but um, but it would be. Hopefully the things that I shared both in the karate classes and in the self-defense classes would lead people not to have to actually deal with attackers, but certainly um, that was always in those classes, um, both the karate classes and for women and the self-defense classes for women, was to deal with people's fears and maybe not address those all at once, but over the sessions, in the short-term sessions, the 16, 12 to 16 hours or the longer-term sessions, deal with the fears that you have, yeah, and deal with building up your confidence and ways to reinforce, even in these short-term classes, reinforce how incredibly strong people can learn to be in a short period of time and how effective you can be at dealing with these situations and getting away from situations. Well, can we talk a little bit more about the Atlanta martial arts scene in the 70s? Because it was men, men, men. I mean, I remember... I remember people like Joe Corley, like the Battle of Atlanta. I mean, that was the the martial arts scene in Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. It was definitely um, male-oriented, and women were seen as threatening. And as I, th- as I say, I think my coming to um, a school with, a, with six or eight other people, women at the same time, helped mitigate that for some time. And the women who were in that school, as I say, they were – Married women whose husbands, if they were not there, it was very well known that they were married women or the young woman whose brother was there training, too. Uh, And I think I was somewhat of an anomaly and possibly, you know, my having articulated after a couple of years blurting that out out loud that I wanted to teach classes to women, you know, which I had no idea was coming out of my mouth, must have been threatening, too. And it was a it was a very threatening. I mean, there were some people I was close to, and I remember at, at this particular school that you know um, I didn't like sparring at all, and we did it almost every class. And after about two and a half years, for the first time, after about two and a half years, you know, I started fighting back. And this man who I was fighting back with, who was a friend in the school, said to me. Mariana, what's the matter? Don't you like me anymore? And I thought to myself, my God, you know, here I am doing something that I'm supposed to be doing, and you who are a friend say this to me. You know, I mean, never said that, and maybe this is the hindsight of 50, 45 years to be able to say that, but it was a pretty threatening thing for me at least during those during those years especially after everybody 
after everybody dropped out. Do you think there were, you faced extra challenges in the 70s? Um, well, because we were in, because you were in the South, um, which was a more conservative region with very specific ideas about women's roles. Yes, as I say, and those other women at my school, too, um, after the after the six, eight people who had started with me who, who joined the dojo, after they all dropped out, um, I think, yeah, that I, I was, that was an issue, too. But, you know, I can remember when I was teaching, the longest um, self-defense um, situation that I taught in was a very, very unusual one. I ended up teaching... Um, that something terrible had happened um, at, uh, at Grady Memorial Hospital. There was a woman um, whom I taught there who said to me, you know, I feel like my hands are tied behind my back when I am doing this. I just can't do anything. And I said to her, you know, you are fighting a lifetime of expectations about the way women are supposed to behave. Women are not supposed to hit back. Women are not supposed to yell. Women are not supposed to be um, other than ladylike. And when you do these things, you are not being traditionally ladylike. Um, so you are fighting, you know, 50 years of something that has been ingrained in you, and that's what's holding, that's what's tying your hands behind your back. And I think I wrote this uh, in uh, one of the papers that I uh, I gave you. Um, I, I used to write up, I was an English major in college, and I worked for some magazines for a number of years um, before um doing this. And that was one of the things. And so I had a history of writing up things. And so I wrote this for something um, about that. But the Grady Hospital situation was an unusual one. And that was, that, as I say, something terrible had happened there. They were looking to hire someone. I had heard, uh, I forget how, that they were interviewing people and that there had been a number of men, black belt instructors, who had, had interviewed for this. And I went to the uh, board of directors um, of the hospital and gave a presentation. And to make a long story short, they hired me to teach uh, women uh, at Grady. Uh, when I heard that, that they had accepted me to do that, I then, and they wanted me to teach um, classes after work. And then I countered it and said I would not do it unless they let people off during their working hours to be able to take these classes. They agreed to that. The way it worked, Grady is a hospital, and so you couldn't just take a whole class of nurses. You had to take one nurse um, from one floor and one, you know, in the three or four floors, and one person from a la uh, the vascular lab and one person from housekeeping and one person from PT and you had to get all of these people together. They gave me a space. Luckily, there was a woman at the hospital. I also said that I would not do it unless they would charge a very, very little amount of money to women to be able to take these classes. So what they did is they made me sign a separate contract for each class. There had to be like, I think, 15 people in each class. 
And I also said that I wanted to teach it on all three shifts. So I ended up, because of this, you had to just get people from so many different departments. I ended up teaching over a period of a year and a half. I ended up teaching one night shift class only, a number of evening shift classes, and then the largest um, group was day shift classes. But I taught over the year and a half. I taught 13 separate courses um, to women, and about 150 women completed um, these courses. And that was the class in which the woman said to me, going back to your original question, uh, it must have been very radically different in the South from other parts of the country, though I I don't know why I didn't particularly think about that. I did think about the role of women when I was talking to this woman who was in her 50s who said to me this thing, I I feel like my hands have been tied behind my back. And I said, yes, you are, and you're being tied back by 50 years of tradition of women not fighting back, not yelling, not being um, unladylike. So what advice would you have if there if there is a Emory student um, who's interested in the martial arts now? As you said, it's kind of a different martial arts world now. What what advice would you give to someone um, who's who's starting that one that wonderful journey? Well, you know, my school, like everybody, because of COVID, my cl- uh, school has not started new classes, but they're thinking of starting even via Zoom. Um, new classes um, in January of uh, 2021. But I would, um, you know, I would say start doing things to physically get yourself in shape, you know, whether it's yoga or um, exercise classes. I do want to say that all of the major decisions in my life have been made in, in concert with my partner, now my wife, Diana, including my decision to start teaching classes for women, to start teaching short-term self-defense classes, to become a reference librarian, to go back to uh, to go to graduate school in library science, to while I was working as a to do different jobs, uh, uh, to take different positions um, at the Atlanta Fulton Public Library, where I was a, a reference librarian for 23 years. To um, to um, start training again, um, and to go back um, uh, while I was still working to go back and get the second master's in uh, in Jewish studies at Emory, and all of those have been made with Deanna, my partner, now my wife, and we've been together uh, 48 and a half years. So I just want to say that I could not have done any of this um, without her. So I think our last question is. What does it mean to you to have the story of this organization, of this community, of this uh, contribution to the community preserved and available in non-pandemic times to to folks at the Rose Library? It just means the world to me, Randy, that you all wanted this and that you are preserving this and, and, um, you know, that... um, um, that there's that there's an interest uh, in it because it was a great big part of my life and I feel like it was a big part of a lot of other people's lives too at the time 
And it's um, something that was very, very important to me and that I feel and felt very passionate about that, um, that women do need to, that it can contribute to your self-esteem. It's a great feeling, to physical feeling uh, to do martial arts. And this, to me, was something that was so, so important to me, it was within the context of the women's liberation movement that this grew out of. And as I say, I just feel it's something that can, at the time, could save people's lives and save people from being, being beaten up and, and from being raped. I mean, I know one woman... Um, was able to get out and you know I would hear stories later on about people telling me things the ways that they got out of bad situations one woman was being robbed at a store and told me what she did to get out of the situation she'd had a short-term self-defense course I mean things like that were very very important to me then and I, I think they probably could be important to people in the future as well. Thank you very much for being with us today. I truly appreciate it. And Randy, you've been great too. I'll just say this, and I'm so appreciative that you recognized, you know, the importance of this, at least at the time and possibly for, for later on too. Atlanta Intersections is produced by Randy Yu and Nick Twelmlow. Jacob Chisenhall is our editor and the legendary band with no name featuring Jimmy Deemer and James Joyce created and performed our theme music. We're grateful for the support of our colleagues at the Rose Library, especially Lolita Rowe, community outreach archivist, Jennifer Gunther King, director of the Rose Library, and Yolanda Cooper, dean of Emory Libraries. Special thanks to the Tots Till Death crew, Joe Strummer, Lux Interior, Poison Ivy, Kid Congo Powers, Nick Knox, and Crass for inspiration. Join us next month for Episode 4 of Atlanta Intersections. For more information about the Rose Library and our other podcast series, please visit us on the web at rose.library.emory.edu and follow the Rose Library on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find all of the Rose Library's podcasts on all your favorite podcast feeds. <laughs>